Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's 2.36pm on the 14th of December 1939 and off the northern coast of Germany, James Bruff from Hobart is about to stare death in the face. Seconded on a short service commission to Britain's Royal Air Force where he's attained the rank of flight lieutenant, the 23-year-old is at the controls of a twin-engined Vickers Wellington bomber and in command of its five crew members. His plane is one of 99 Squadron's 12 Wellingtons, flying in formation over the North Sea, just 200 feet above the water's surface, forced down to this low level by thick cloud and incessant rain. In the past few weeks, Bomber Command has been under pressure from First Lord of the Admiralty Winston Churchill to strike a decisive blow against the German naval fleet. So while the 99's mission today is reconnaissance of the huge bay known as the Heligoland Bight, they also have orders to bomb any German battlecruisers that they might see. Now, looming up out of the haze are two such warships. But Jim Bruff and the rest of the 99 aren't about to just come up against anti-aircraft fire from these cruisers. They're about to feel the full fury of the Luftwaffe. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, The First to Fight. At 11.15am on the 3rd of September 1939, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared war on Germany after Adolf Hitler ignored an ultimatum to withdraw his forces from Poland, which the Fuhrer had subjected to Blitzkrieg, that is, lightning war, two days earlier. It had long been feared in England that soon after the outbreak of any hostilities with Germany, the skies over London would darken with Nazi planes sent to bomb the city. But that didn't happen, and for the next eight months, nothing much else happened on the ground in Western Europe. Winston Churchill referred to it as the Twilight War. Germans called it the Sitzkrieg, that is, the sitting war. But worldwide, this period was best known as the Phony War. As such, most Australian soldiers, sailors and airmen wouldn't see action until after April of 1940. 
But things were very different for the 450 or so Australians serving with Britain's Royal Air Force, especially those like James Bruff, who'd been assigned to Bomber Command. For these men, there was no Twilight War, no Sitzkrieg, no phony war. That's because Bomber Command's operations against the Germans started just 48 minutes after Chamberlain declared war. And it was men from Bomber Command who'd be the first to die in combat in a conflict that, over the next six years, would go on to claim as many as 56 million lives. James Frederick Powell Bruff was born on the 26th of November 1916 in Perth. Little Jim's parents, Annie and Fred, both from Manchester, had come to Western Australia six years earlier. They'd married in England on the last day of April 1910 and soon after being tempted by the prospect of a new life in Western Australia whose state government was offering free land grants to English migrants. Land for the landless. That's what advertisements in Manchester's Guardian newspaper promised. The vast open spaces of what was advertised as sunny Australia seemed the antidote to everything wrong with the Bruff's home city. As Annie would later write, Manchester was a place where back gardens were, quote, the size of postage stamps, while winters were, in her words, a season of torture, a succession of chillblains, chapped hands, sore throats, shivers, blue cheeks and a red nose. Having made up their minds, the Bruffs left England aboard the steamer Orvetio in late June 1910, arriving in Fremantle six weeks later with the vague idea that they'd make their fortune raising wheat. The problem was Fred and Annie knew approximately nothing about farming because he was an electrical engineer and she was a teacher. Outside of their professions, their interests lay not in tilling the soil, but in treading the boards. Both Fred and Annie were talented at acting, singing and dancing, and they'd been active in English theatre circles, sharing a love of Gilbert and Sullivan. But the Western Australian government didn't need migrants to don grease paint. It needed them growing crops. So Fred learned farming by working for free for a grazier. Meanwhile, Annie got a teaching position at a country school. In March 1911, the Bruffs finally had their land, a 1,000-acre block at Bungalloping Well near Cumminan in the Shire of Bruce Rock, about 160 miles due east of Perth. Loading up their pony-drawn cart with tinned food, canvas water bags, a supply of flour, cooking utensils and two canvas stretchers, Fred, Annie and their fox terrier pup Chummy set off into what she called the Never Never Land. They soon found that the red dirt bush roads they travelled were so rudimentary that it was quicker and easier to walk beside the cart than ride in it. Their block of land was just as rough, and for the next eight months, the Bruffs by day cleared land and by night slept on their stretches in a canvas humpy. Tough though it was, they stuck it out and became well-respected pioneers in the Bruce Rock region, with Annie also taking charge of local education as the area's first schoolmistress. After the Great War began in August 1914, the Bruffs also found an outlet for their theatrical talents when they formed a company known as the Cummin and Kiwis to put on concerts to raise money for the war effort. In July 1915, the couple welcomed their first child, a daughter they named Sheila. By early 1916, Annie was pregnant again, and on the 26th of November 1916, she gave birth to their son, James. The Bruffs were a decent, hard-working and popular family. On top of all that, they were also easy on the eye. In August 1917, there was much amusement when the Bruce Rock Ugly Man competition raised money for charity, 
with Fred surely pleased to have ranked equal second last in a field of 24 local fellas. Little Jim soon followed in Dad's footsteps with the Bruce Rock Post and Corrigan Guardian reporting in October 1917, quote, Baby show. The coming and baby contest is going strong. Baby Bruff is miles in the lead. When the final results were tallied, Jim placed fifth out of 14 tykes, not that it would have troubled him too much at 11 months of age. Far more worrying for his parents were the heatwave and fires that hit the region in early January 1918. Flames blazed across the Bruff's property, incinerating their crops, though with the help of a neighbour, Fred stopped the fire from destroying their homestead. By this time, the Cumminan Kiwis had been disbanded because all of its male members had enlisted and in March 1918, Fred Bruff followed by joining the 1st Australian Imperial Force. His skills as an electrical engineer saw him attached as a second-class air mechanic to the Australian Flying Corps. When the war ended, Fred and Annie sought another new start for themselves and their young children, far from the hardships of pioneer life in Western Australia. Moving to Tasmania, they settled in Hobart in the riverside suburb of Belle Reve, with Fred becoming chief draftsman for the AIF's drawing office branch. He and Annie also threw themselves into Hobart's theatrical scene. Through the 1920s, the Bruffs were well-regarded performers, often appearing together in shows like The Pirates of Penzance and the comic opera they loved best of all, The Mikado. While Fred also produced theatre, Annie made a name for herself as a writer of stage and radio plays. Changing Vines, her one-act play, was broadcast on Hobart Radio in 1931 and she followed up in 1933 with We Were Very Green, a light-hearted series about their early days as Western Australian pioneers. And in 1934, Annie won a special prize in the Australian Broadcasting Commission's Sketch and Play competition with her work The Piano Tuner, which again drew on their days living in Western Australia's Wheat Belt. For this, she was featured in the Australian Women's Weekly. Growing up in such an artistic environment, it's fitting that the first known published photo of Little Jim Bruff, which appeared in the Illustrated Tasmanian Mail newspaper in August 1922, showed him in makeup and costume as Puss in Boots for a fancy dress competition. Jim went to Belreve Primary and then to the Friends School. While he was a good kid, Jim also had itchy feet and a desire to rebel against his mother and father who, while strict, were also kind of self-absorbed. That may explain his attention-grabbing stunt at age 12 when he ran away from home by rowing across the Derwent River to join a circus visiting Hobart. Young Jim copped it from his parents for that caper. Like his parents, Jim had a creative bent. He was a good writer, played the violin, could draw well, and sometimes took minor roles in his father's stage productions. But Jim's real interest lay in following Fred into engineering or draftsmanship. To this end, after primary school, he went to Hobart's Junior Technical School, graduating his intermediate certificate with a credit for electrical work and passes in mathematics, geometry, physics, machine drawing and applied geometry. Though he wasn't the greatest student academically, Jim did earn the respect and admiration of his teachers. A reference from the Junior Technical College's headmaster read in part... He was a most conscientious and hard-working pupil and won the good opinion of his teachers in every subject. He was captain of one of the school groups and carried out his duties in an excellent manner. His pleasant demeanour and tactful handling of the boys made him popular with everyone. Jim had also grown into a handsome young man who stood 5'8 with light blue eyes and brown hair. 
After leaving school, he got work as a warehouse assistant before landing a job as a junior draftsman in the bridge building department of the public service. At night, he went to Hobart's Technical College where he excelled in electrical engineering. But Jim wouldn't graduate because when he was 18, an advertisement appeared that would change his life as fundamentally as that land for the landless promotion had changed his parents' lives a quarter of a century earlier. This is how the ad read in the 31st of August 1935 issue of Hobart's The Mercury newspaper. Applications are invited from candidates for cadetships in the Royal Australian Air Force. Cadetships are available for subsequent appointment to short service commissions of four years in the RAAF or five years in the Royal Air Force for service in England, India, Iran, Egypt, etc. The advertisement stated that applicants were to be between 18 and 22 years of age and have at least attained an intermediate pass at school. Successful applicants would study to be pilots at the number one flying training school at the Point Cook RAAF base southwest of Melbourne. Jim Bruff fit the requirements. His academic record was solid enough. But perhaps more importantly, he had those glowing references to his good character, exemplary conduct and leadership potential, all of which were prized qualities required in young men who would train to be RAAF pilots. Jim got his application off by the due date of the 21st of September 1935. Then he waited just like the 1,000 other hopefuls from all over Australia who'd also applied. Jim made it through the first hurdle when he was one of the 500 to be interviewed by the Air Force Selection Committee. And then, in mid-December, Jim got the news. He'd been chosen to be an RAAF cadet. Around Australia, 42 other young men were thrilled to learn that they would also be going to Point Cook. Among those successful applicants were Gordon Olive of Queensland, John Alsop and Norman Chaplin, both from Victoria, William Canane and Guy Graysmith, both from Western Australia, and another Tasmanian, Robert Cosgrove, whose father was the state's agriculture minister and would go on to be its premier. Little did Jim and these cadets know that within a few years, more than half of them would be dead. Jim Bruff officially enlisted in the RAAF on the 20th of January 1936. His year of training would be divided into two terms and it was an experience that would prove intense, exciting, emotional and exhausting. Each morning at six, Jim and the other cadets were jolted out of bed by a bugle. After breakfast came a few hours of drill and marching. The rest of their morning was devoted to lectures that would cover some 20 subjects, including navigation, the theory of flight, the intricacies of engine mechanics, the ins and outs of ballistics and armaments, and fighter and bomber tactics and strategy. Afternoons were devoted to practice. That was learning to fly in gypsy moth biplanes. As is typical in such military environments, there was a quick camaraderie that found expression in robust humour. The program for a January 1936 evening to celebrate their induction was bawdy for its time, featuring cartoons of nymphs and the listing of a mock heroic dramatic performance set in Bullshite Castle. Bob Cosgrove, meanwhile, got a lot of laughs for his imitation of a much-despised instructor that the cadets had nicknamed Pussy. Of course, such shenanigans helped let off steam because in those days of canvas and wood biplanes and primitive instrumentation and navigation, their practical training was really dangerous. On the 16th of April 1936, they found out just how deadly it could be. One of the boys, 
Norman Chaplin from Victoria was coming out of a loop from 2,000 feet when his moth plane's wings, in the words of one newspaper report, folded up like those of a butterfly. The 19-year-old cadet frantically leaped from the cockpit, but his parachute became entangled with the plummeting aircraft, and he was killed when it smashed into the ground. While a tragedy, this was, in a very real way, also part of the training for Jim and the other cadets. That's because to be an Air Force pilot meant you were going to see your friends die. In the second half of the year, the cadets swapped their moths for Wapiti biplanes. In them, they learned to fly in and maintain close formation even when racing through thick cloud with zero visibility. They did high-altitude flying to 20,000 feet, where, in open cockpits, the temperature dropped to sub-Arctic. But the most thrilling training was air-to-ground attack practice, in which Jim and his mates had to put their planes into steep 100-mile-per-hour dives from 2,000 feet. As the ground rushed up at them, they had to fire their machine guns and release their bombs at targets and then pull their aircraft up and out before they smeared themselves across the landscape. Jim filled his scrapbook with photos of his aerial adventures, including the vertiginous view from his cockpit during one of those dives. Jim loved flying more than anything. All of the cadets did. One of them, Guy Graysmith, wrote of the training, quote, I loved being among the clouds, out of sight of everything, on my own. I loved the poetry of it and the action. There's something spiritual about flying. You're alone in the sky and you face your problems alone. But simple passion wasn't enough and, given the difficulty of the course, 11 cadets dropped out or failed their final examinations. But Jim Bruff? He made it. On the 9th of December 1936, he and 30 other cadets were set to graduate. But just hours before their passing out parade was to begin, another tragedy struck at Point Cook when two planes piloted by instructors collided over the base. Pilot Sergeant Robert Frederick Somerville, the man the cadets had called Pussy, suffered fatal injuries. The passing out parade went ahead as planned. While they were now RAAF pilots, Jim and the other cadets still looked like boys in their dress uniforms, rifles on their shoulders, as they marched by Air Vice Marshal Williams to take his salute. The Argus newspaper ran several photos and an article headlined, Young Air Force Pilots Earn Their Wings. The story also listed the names of the men who had been accepted for short service commission to join the RAF for five years. Jim was one of the 25 who'd be going to England, along with Gordon Olive, Bob Cosgrove, William Canane, John Alsop and Guy Graysmith. After graduation, Jim and Bob Cosgrove sailed back to Hobart to spend Christmas and New Year's with their families. Then, on the 5th of January 1937, Jim sailed for England from Melbourne aboard the Orford. When Jim and his fellow Australians arrived in England the following month, they found its winter was just as cold and wet and miserable as they'd been led to believe. The Aussies were also dismayed by the fact that while their RAAF uniforms had been supplied to them, they were expected to pay for their RAF uniforms and deductions would come out of their salaries over the next four years. The young pilots started RAF technical courses at Peterborough Base in Cambridgeshire. In May 1937, the Mercury newspaper reported on a big function held at London's Waldorf Hotel that was attended by the Tasmanian Premier, Albert Ogilvy, who was in England for the coronation of George VI. 
The guest list not only included Australian Prime Minister Joseph Lyons and other politicians, but also pilot officers Jim Bruff and Bob Cosgrove. Speaking to the Mercury's reporter, Cosgrove said that their time in England had been happy so far. They'd found their RAF brother officers warm and welcoming and had soon settled in. But flying was a tad trickier than it had been back home. That's because the sameness of the English countryside made it more difficult to navigate. These Aussies were also mightily amused by how small England was, saying they'd flown or driven over most of it already. In June 1937, Jim was assigned to 99 Squadron and stationed at Mildon Hall in Suffolk. The 99 had been formed in 1917 and functioned as a bomber squadron from mid-1918, carrying out 76 raids on German forces and sustaining heavy losses, including one day in July 1918 when seven of nine planes sent to bomb railway targets were shot down. By the early 1930s, the 99 and other Bomber Command squadrons were believed crucial to winning any future war. In 1932, Stanley Baldwin, Lord President of the Council, had famously told Parliament, quote, the bomber will always get through. That reflected the belief of military experts and theorists that bombers flying in close formation would be able to use their guns to protect themselves so that enough of them would make it to their targets to unleash incendiary fury against airfields, factories, troop movements and command centres. Bombers, these experts thought, might even single-handedly defeat the enemy. But if that enemy was to be Germany, which had a huge modern air force, then the RAF needed new planes. When Jim Bruff joined the 99 Squadron in 1937, they were still flying Handley Page and Handley Hayfords, long obsolete biplane bombers. In the spring of 1938, Jim's mum Annie visited and he took leave so they could spend most of a month visiting relatives and touring southeastern England. But sunny days darkened soon after when, in September 1938, Adolf Hitler annexed the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia and war with England looked imminent. The 99, like all other RAF squadrons, was put on a state of high alert, ready to move precious planes to rearward aerodromes because the outbreak of war was expected to be accompanied by Luftwaffe bombing raids. But at the end of September, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain appeased the Nazi dictator to avoid war, at least for the time being. That October, the 99 became the first RAF squadron to receive the new medium-to-long-range bomber, the Vickers Wellington. A monoplane, the twin-engine Wellington was crewed by six men, had forward, underside and rear turret guns and could carry 4,500 pounds of bombs, 1,500 miles at 240 miles per hour and reach a ceiling of 18,000 feet. Jim Bruff was one of the first pilots to fly this new plane when he carried out acceptance trials and put it through its paces. Over the next 10 months, the 99 trained in these new bombers for a war that seemed to get closer every day. While the Wellingtons were the RAF's newest and best machine, training in them could still get you killed. On the 6th of August 1938, one of the 99's Wellingtons crashed when returning to base. All crew members perished. Just two days later, another Wellington from the 99 went missing, presumed to have crashed. Three days after that, on the 11th of August 1939, air raid sirens sounded and London and southeastern England were blacked out as the skies were filled with fighter planes, enemy bombers and searchlights. This wasn't war, but a massive military exercise between the imaginary air forces of 
Westland, which comprised Fighter Command's aircraft, and Eastland, made up of Bomber Command's planes. This war game, which simulated a huge German bombing raid, was deemed a success, with Westland having been able to defend itself. But this mock battle came with real loss of life. Flying a fairy battle bomber in the darkness, William Kinane, who'd been through Point Cook with Jim, hit a high-tension cable at Cranbrook in Kent. His plane burst into flames, crashed into a field, hit a tree and exploded, killing Kinane and another airman. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. On the 1st of September 1939, Germany launched its blitzkrieg attack on Poland. With war now almost certain, 99 Squadron was ordered into Scatter Scheme, which saw its Wellingtons moved to Newmarket Racecourse, where German raiders would be less likely to find and destroy the planes on the ground, and where the mile-long straight could be used as an airfield. As for the men... They'd sleep in the grandstand. At 11.15am on the 3rd of September 1939, England's ultimatum to Germany to withdraw from Poland having been ignored, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain addressed the nation over the BBC. At Newmarket, the men of the 99 assembled on the parade ground to hear the news. 33 minutes after that, At 11.48am, a Blenheim bomber took off from Whiten to reconnoitre targets off German North Sea naval bases. This pilot spotted a pocket battleship and cruisers and destroyers in the waters known as the Schillig Roads near Wilhelmshaven and also saw battle cruisers at Brunsbüttel at the mouth of the River Elbe. But the pilot's radio failed and valuable time was lost as he returned to base. Nevertheless, a raid was launched with 24 bombers, Handley Hamptons and Wellingtons from the 49, 83, 37 and 149 squadrons flying to attack these targets. Their rules of engagement were incredibly strict. Pilots were not allowed to overfly neutral Belgium or Holland, so they'd have to approach over the North Sea and they weren't allowed to bomb the actual naval bases or any other land targets or even ships at docks for fear of killing or injuring civilians. By the time the bombers got close to Wilhelmshaven and Brunsbüttel, the weather had deteriorated so badly that they couldn't find their targets. Meanwhile, back at Newmarket, the 99 was told that six air crews would be needed to drop propaganda leaflets over Germany. But this raid was then cancelled. The following day, the 4th of September, saw the same pilot return from a similar reconnaissance mission. He'd again seen German warships and again suffered a radio snafu. Another bomber raid was launched, this time comprising 29 planes, Blenheims and Wellingtons from the 9, 107, 110, 139 and 149 squadrons. 15 of these aircraft were unable to find their targets in bad weather and flew back to base. The remaining 14 attacked German ships at Wilhelmshaven and Brunsbüttel, but missed their primary targets or hit them with bombs that failed to explode. Nine Squadron inflicted a little damage on a warship and killed a handful of German sailors when one of its Blenheims crashed into the light cruiser Emden. 
and another six English planes were shot down by anti-aircraft fire from battleships and in attacks by Luftwaffe planes. All told, 29 airmen were killed and another two were taken as prisoners of war. England and Germany had drawn first blood. World War II was one day old. Despite the 4th of September raid being something of a disaster, the Ministry of Defence cast it as a victory, a communique claiming heavy damage had been done to German ships at the cost of, quote, some casualties. The coming weeks would be frustrating for the 12 crews of 99 Squadron. On the 8th of September, in terrible weather, three crews did do a leaflet drop over Hanover, while Jim and the rest of the squadron carried out air firing practice. In the weeks that followed, numerous other leaflet raids were ordered, crews stood by and were then stood down because of rain, fog and wind. Similarly, orders would be given to stand by for an attack on the German fleet, only for those missions to be cancelled due to poor visibility. It had to be vexing, but then again, every time a mission was cancelled was another day that you didn't die. On the 28th of September 1939, Australia suffered what's believed to be its first casualty of World War II when acting wing commander Ivan Cameron, who'd been in England with the RAF for more than a decade after graduating Point Cook in 1927, was shot out of the sky during a reconnaissance mission over Germany. Just three days later, on the 1st of October, Flight Lieutenant John Alsop, Jim's Point Cook classmate, now with 10 Squadron, failed to return from Bomber Command's first leaflet mission over Berlin. His plane presumed to have run out of fuel and crashed in the North Sea. In his book, The Battle of Heligoland Bight, The Royal Air Force and the Luftwaffe, author Robin Holmes neatly sums up what life was like for Jim Bruff and his mates. Quote, The realities of modern war bore no relationship to the textbooks written by veterans of the 1914-18 war. Foul weather, poor navigation, inadequate training, wireless transmitters that froze up, guns that jammed, bombs that didn't explode. That was the reality. In modern jargon, both adversaries were right at the bottom of the learning curve. Not that Britons would have known that from The Lion Has Wings, a propaganda film shot using Bomber Command personnel at Milton Hall at this time and released in November 1939. Now we've received information that the German pocket battleships are making towards the mouth of the Kiel Canal. By the time you get there, they should be just inside. Your job is to secure direct hits on the battleships. Produced by Alexander Corder in just 12 days, the movie combined dramatic scenes starring Ralph Richardson and Merle Oberon with newsreel footage and actual scenes of RAF airmen at work. The Lion Has Wings culminated with a recreation of Bomber Command's September 4th raid to show a well-oiled fighting machine operating in agreeable weather conditions to socket to the Germans with precision bombing. Though Jim Bruff was promoted to acting flight lieutenant on the 18th of September, he and his comrades in the 99 didn't see action, apart from the occasional leaflet or recon mission, as the weather worsened through October and November. During this period, Jim posted one of the German-language propaganda leaflets home to his parents, who shared it with the Mercury newspaper. The leaflet read, in part, quote, we have no hate against you, the German people. The Nazi censor has hidden from you the fact that you have not the means to see through a long war. In spite of terribly heavy and hard taxes, you are nearly on the rocks. We and our allies command immeasurable reserves of manpower, armaments and money. We are too strong to be beaten and are able to fight you mercilessly to exhaustion. 
For First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, such fighting words needed to be backed up with action, and he pressured Bomber Command to strike a decisive blow against the German naval fleet. On the 3rd of December, three months to the day since the start of the war, 24 Wellingtons from the 38, 115 and 149 squadrons carried out an attack on the German island fortress of Heligoland, about 45 miles north of Wilhelmshaven. This time, the Wellington pilots and air crews covered themselves in glory. Flying out of the sun, they bombed and sank a minesweeper while Wellington gunners repelled attacking Messerschmitt 109 fighter planes and even shot one down. The raiding English planes didn't suffer a single casualty. But the 99 wasn't involved in this action and its operation record book from that day is almost wistful. Quote, Although other number three group units carried out a successful attack on Heligoland today, this squadron did not operate. Previous raids of a similar nature were missed because number 99 squadron was standing by for long distance leaflet raids. Over the next 10 days, the 99's operations record book paints a similarly frustrating picture. Quote, 5-12-39, no important events. 7.12.39. Six aircraft stood by at one hour's notice for sweep duties from 07.30. Aircraft stood down at 10.55 owing to weather. Thick fog, visibility 30 yards. 8.12.39. Training. Continuous rain fell all day. 10.12.39. No important events. 11.12.39. No important events. Heavy fog, visibility 40 to 50 yards. 12-12-39, no important events. 13-12-39, no important events. Then, on the 14th of December, all 12 of 99 Squadron's Wellingtons were put on one hour's notice from 6am. At 11 that morning, the 99 had its orders. All 12 Wellingtons were to carry out reconnaissance off Wilhelmshaven and report enemy surface craft in the area. Each plane was to carry three 500-pound bombs and attack any large battle cruisers or cruisers if weather allowed the planes to reach an altitude of 2,000 feet, which was how high they needed to be for their bombs to be effective against deck armour. At 11.45am, the Wellingtons took off from Newmarket and flew northeast. The formation was comprised of four sections, each of three planes. In the lead was Section 1, with Squadron Leader McKee's plane out front, followed left and right by Pilot Officer Lewis and Flying Officer Dyer. Section 2 was led by Flight Lieutenant Jim Bruff flanked on the port side by Flight Sergeant Downey's plane and on the starboard side by Flight Sergeant Healy's Wellington. Section 3 was led by Squadron Leader Cat, with Flight Officer Smith and Flight Sergeant Williams following. And bringing up the rear was Flight Lieutenant Hetherington, leading bombers piloted by Sergeant Brace and Flight Officer Cooper. Twelve planes, 72 men. As always seemed to be the case, the weather was atrocious, with the planes passing over the Norfolk coast at 1,000 feet beneath thick cloud. Out over the North Sea, conditions worsened, rain forcing the planes down to 600 feet. At just after 1pm, they turned northwards so that any flagships would think they were heading for Haligoland. At 1.47pm, when they were about 30 miles from Heligoland, the formation turned south, bearing down on the Schillig Roads, flying just 200 feet above the water, visibility reduced to half a mile. In these conditions, they wouldn't be able to climb to 2,000 feet to bomb anything. But nor would any Germans be able to see them coming, so the reconnaissance mission could still succeed. What Jim and the other pilots didn't know was that their enemy had already seen them using the recently developed Freya early warning radar system. 
At 2.14pm, the 99 Squadron formation saw the island of Wangarooge, two miles dead ahead, and they turned east where, four minutes later, they spotted a German submarine on the surface. The submarine fired a red ball flare. In the leading plane, McKee replied by firing two red flares in quick succession on the off chance that it might be the Germans' recognition signal. It wasn't and the submarine crash-dived. At 2.25pm, still flying east, 99 Squadron saw two cruisers about a mile away and heading due south at a speed of 10 knots. The Wellingtons turned north to avoid flying over these ships and then swung around to the left to approach the cruisers from behind for a better look. But before they could reach them, three German destroyers loomed out of the ocean haze, just half a mile away, and at 2.29pm, they opened fire as the Wellingtons approached at an altitude of 200 feet. Minutes later, the cruisers, also now aware of the Wellingtons' approach, opened up with their anti-aircraft guns and artillery, shells exploding in the air and bursting in the water, the force of these blasts buffeting the planes. Jim Bruff and the other pilots took evasive action and, with no way to bomb these vessels, turned westwards for England. At 2.36pm, the pilots saw three dots zooming up out of the haze ahead. These were Messerschmitt 109 single-engine fighters, scrambled from the island of Wangarooge, and they attacked head-on, with the Wellingtons returning fire. Then, from below, three more ME-109s attacked the 99th rear section. Brace's Wellington was hit and smashed, burning into the sea. Cooper's plane copped it next, breaking away and was last seen with its undercarriage down as it flew towards the German coast. Now three ME-110s, which were twin-engine fighters, appeared off port and attacked the leader's plane. Three more ME-110s swarmed in, attacking the rear sections. Tail gunners from the six planes in Jim and Kat's section fired at the Messerschmitts, hitting one which crashed into the waves. Then another Messerschmitt was on Jim's Wellington, bullets ripping through his fuselage until his gunner fought it off. When the lead plane was attacked again, McKee's rear gunner shot another Messerschmitt out of the sky. As the Wellingtons lumbered along just a few hundred feet above the water, attacked on all sides by these far faster and more agile fighter planes, they were also subjected to continual anti-aircraft fire from every German ship that suddenly loomed out of the haze. Ahead of Jim, in the leading section, Lewis took evasive action. Turning towards the rear, his Wellington collided with Downey's plane, which was flying off Jim's port side. Both aircraft exploded and fell, burning, into the water. Then, starboard of Jim's plane, Healy's Wellington succumbed to Messerschmitt fire and burst into flames before it, too, crashed into the waves. Meanwhile, Hetherington's Wellington was nowhere to be seen. The final Messerschmitt attack came at 3.01pm, the German fighter planes, guns blazing and the remaining Wellingtons returning fire, though no aircraft on either side were damaged in this last exchange. Flying back to Newmarket, the 99 Squadron was in tatters. Only six planes had escaped and five of those were riddled with bullet holes. Miraculously, none of the airmen in these Wellingtons were seriously wounded, and there was another reason to give thanks when Hetherington's plane reappeared from the clouds. The seven Wellingtons approached the Newmarket racecourse in the early winter dusk, but Hetherington's plane had sustained serious damage. One of its wing flaps had been shot off, and when he tried to land, the plane rolled, coming apart as it crashed into a field near the racecourse and burst into flames. Hetherington was killed, as were two of his crew. Just hours earlier, 72 men of 99 Squadron had taken off in 12 Wellingtons. Now, 33 were dead, with six planes lost. 
It was a grim price to pay for having shot down two German fighters, killing one pilot and wounding another. The RAF belief that the bomber will always get through should have been shaken by this very clear demonstration that formation flying in a daylight raid offered little protection against fast German fighter aircraft. But despite what 99 Squadron air crew said about the battle, the RAF's upper echelon simply didn't believe them and put all the losses down to naval anti-aircraft fire. Air Commodore Norman Bottomley wrote, quote, It is now by no means certain that enemy fighters did in fact succeed in shooting down any of the Wellingtons. The failure of the enemy must be ascribed to good formation flying. The maintenance of tight, unshaken formation in the face of the most powerful enemy action is the test of bomber force fighting efficiency and morale. He also wrote, quote, It is remarkable that our casualties were so light. Men who survived that mission would later describe the horror of that day. Wireless operator and gunner Toddy Knight, who'd been in the leading plane, put it this way, quote, I can still see the trace of flying around the aircraft as I was sending the sighting report, and when I got back to find the petrol pouring out of punctured tanks, I saw aircraft of our squadron with wings blazing, falling out of the sky. Wireless operator and gunner Bill Simmons, who was in Cat's plane in Section 3, the only Wellington that wasn't hit, recalled, quote, Considering I saw aircraft hit and go down all around us, this was, I think, a miracle. It is something which will remain a vivid memory until I die. We lost many friends that day. World War II had been going for just over 100 days, with no end in sight. With so many men that Jim Bruff had known already dead, he had to wonder how long it'd be before... His number was up. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Part two of this episode will be released next week, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it comes out. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love you to leave a review or rating at iTunes because it helps other people find the podcast. And if you want more information about this or any other episode, go to ForgottenAustralia.com or the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.